Hi, this is Ann Janzer, author of 33 Ways Not to Screw Up Your Business Emails, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Ann Janzer. Ann Janzer is an award-winning author, nonfiction writing coach, and an unabashed writing geek committed to helping people make a positive impact with their writing. She supports and encourages writers and authors through her books, blog posts, webinars, and teaching. Her writing-related books explore the science and practice of effective writing. Before she started writing books, Ann was a freelance marketing consultant with more than 100 technology businesses to articulate positioning and messaging in crowded marketplaces. She's been writing business emails longer than she cares to admit and has made all the mistakes in this book. She wants to save you from making those same mistakes and creating those problems. Anne lives in Bispo, St. Louis, California, and is here to talk about her book, 33 Ways Not to Screw Up Your Business Emails. Welcome, Anne. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me back. It's great to have you back on my quest for the best. Tell me, when you were growing up, Anne, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you, perhaps even related to this topic? Yes. I thought about recently because I was going through some photos and I found a few pieces of paper tucked in some old files and I opened them up and they were letters from my dad. My dad ran a investment consulting firm and he was a consummate letter writer. So when he'd get on a plane, he'd always bring his yellow legal pad and his ballpoint pen and he'd write letters. Most of them went back to the office to be typed up and sent it to clients, but he would also write letters to his kids, his family. I found a couple that I I didn't remember having. I really, really treasured them. It was from right after I was married and he visited us and he'd gotten on the plane for a flight to LA and he wrote this letter and reading them, I teared up. It was really lovely. And it really made me think. He left us in 2008. Email was already here. He was railing against needing to use messaging and everything because he loved the long form letter. He loved to take the time to gather his thoughts and be really thoughtful in what he sent someone. I just thought, whoa, man, I've just written this book about emails. I'm always powering off emails, but fundamentally my message is take a moment, gather your thoughts, try to serve the person that you're writing. So his influence is still there with me just in a different way. I think about him now when I write emails and thinking maybe this should be a letter. There are a lot of times people have meetings and they leave the meeting saying this should have been an email. Yeah. And there are some emails that should be a call or a meeting. It's so finding the right format for our communications is so important and so difficult. And we tend to default to something we get comfortable with. And that's not always the right. I think this all flows into the same part of the conversation. What is it that people should be asking themselves or thinking about? Because the goal is effective communication. The goal is conveying a message that's going to inform, ask someone to take action and help solve a problem. What is it that you find helpful for yourself, maybe, before you decide what way to use a communication? When I decide what's going to be the right form, my go-to is probably email because I'm a writer. That feels comfortable to me. But if I I'm giving someone feedback, say, if I'm giving someone feedback on their writing, on their book, I don't usually want to just fire off an email, especially if it's feedback that I'm hoping that they might take in hand and internalize and do something with. I'd rather get on a call with them and and talk through it. So what I'll do is I'll write
write something up, but then I'll get on a call, then I'll send them or share with them the thing that I've written as a memento of that call. You send them the notes from what you use to guide you in the discussion. Precisely. When you call, and especially a video call, you can wave your hands around. You can hear my voice. You can hear that I'm smiling while I'm saying this, especially if you're taking feedback on your work. We're set up to be defensive. We're set up to protect it. So much better to bring all of those extra tools that we have in person, our voice, our intonation on video, our expression, our smiles, and really help people go back and forth and ask questions and make sure that they're comfortable with it. So giving feedback is tough to do via email alone. If you can't get on a call with someone, one thing my son taught me was make a little video and send it with the email that you're sending if you're giving someone feedback so they can see how you really feel. They can get the emotion behind it because emails are terrible for expressing emotion and tone. That's why we were using emojis. That's why we throw a bunch of exclamation marks and everything is to try to show, look, happy, or to try to add some emotion or tone. Those are some of the subtleties that take extra care in order to convey in writing. Sometimes, like with emojis, the pictures help add that extra flavor, that extra layer, that extra dimension. However, it only is an approximation, having visual as well as audio, being able to convey via video call or even first in person, because that's where you really have the best chance of conveying all of the nuances. Sometimes it's not necessary, but other times, especially in in your case, where you're looking to help not just correct what someone's written once, explore what's behind it or make a change so that somebody takes it forward and is able to not make that mistake in the future because they're thinking about it differently. That's a case where you really do want to have all of the channels of communication open to you. Isn't that right? That's exactly right. So you have to look at what it is your, if it's just a simple thing like there's donuts in the break room, you don't need to do that. Not that anyone is in a break room anymore, but you hear what I'm saying. Think about the nature of what it is you're trying to do. How much interaction should there be? And how important is tone? How important is it that the tone lands exactly? As I was thinking about this and reading your book, I was thinking to myself that one thing that I often use as a determinant as to what form of communication I'll reach out with is how much time do I have? I could write an email to give someone the details, but it's going to take me 15 minutes. That could be covered in a three to five minute call, sometimes just to be expedient. I'll pick up the phone and just say, hey, let's go over this. Absolutely. Sometimes the fastest thing is a call or like sometimes if someone wants to meet it, how is it I do that thing on Amazon again? I'm going to make a one minute video and show it to you because it's so much faster. Writing procedural stuff is really hard and it takes time and I'm just going to do this really quickly. So yeah, the first rule of not screwing up your business emails is recognizing what should and shouldn't be an email. One of the terms that I love from your book and that I keep coming back to is the Goldilocks zone. You don't want to have too much detail because you'll overwhelm people and lose the point of what you're saying. You don't want to have too little email because too sparse, they may not really have a clear idea of what you're asking them to do or why you're asking them to do it. But there's that zone that's just right. Talk about how you came up with that and what are some of the guidelines that you use to help people think about the Goldilocks zone and sending the written communications by email? Yeah, that came to me because someone approached me saying, can you help me with my team? I have this person always sends way too much information in the email. They're trying to do something very specific. Their their team was like organizing events or something. a specific set of things to communicate. One person always sent too little information. You had to go back three times. One person dumped the kitchen sink and you couldn't find what you needed. The other person sent the right amount, but the wrong information. But she was like, ah, so the Goldilocks zone was right there in my head. It was practically the fairy tale right there, except there wasn't anything that was quite right. You avoided some violent crime that Manager was about to commit (laughs) if one more set of emails went out like that. That's the point, how frustrating it is. If we're trying to do our jobs through emails and someone's not taking the time to think about 
what we need. That's fundamentally the Goldilocks zone is determined by the recipient, right? What do they need to get from this? Often that means we write the email and then we stop. Then we say, okay, now, given that this is all the stuff I want to say, what is it that they in fact really need to do the next step? And am I missing something that they need? Am I missing something? If you need to talk, here's a scheduling link. We'll figure it out. Just how many emails can you eliminate? How many back and forths can you eliminate? It's really important to stop and think before we send the email about what it is that the recipient wants and needs from that email rather than what we want to say. Yet our first instinct, raise your hand if most of the emails you send are first drafts. That's all of us. And I confess, me as well, although I finally gotten better at just stop, let me just take another look before I send this. One of the tips in the book that I'm just going to share because so many people shared it with me and you may already do it, but address last. You're starting a new email to someone, don't fill in the two field. Just don't do it. Write the email, work on it. This will prevent you from that quick send. You'll have to go and put the email address in last and that will be a reminder. Uh, Let me just take one more read through this, make sure it's what I want. So don't put it, fill in the two field last. Don't do it right away because it won't send without a two or CC. If there's no one to go to, your email won't send and you'll save yourself from those inadvertent things that go off. While we're on the topic, what are some other extensions that you use or tools that you use in order to write more effective emails or to gain more control over email? Let me share with you one of mine that I'm thinking of. In Google Mail, for instance, it gives you the ability to recall an email within 15 or 30 seconds after you send it. I make sure that's always on on any device that I use because there may be times when I sent it and then think of something else. Yeah, that is precisely one of them is the recall, which I learned that my default was to five seconds. I want 30 seconds, which is enough time to really generally say, oh yeah, I I fixed it. So I would say no matter what mailing system you're using, look to see what it offers. Even writing this book, I discovered things in Google Mail most of the time. I was like, I didn't know I could adjust how long I have. That's really fascinating. That's definitely a tool that I have done for sure. Lots of tips and tricks, but I'm not using a lot of third-party tools. I'm just trying to set up processes, mental processes. One of my favorite things is, so I write an email, and then before I send it, I reread the first paragraph, and I change it from I to you, almost every case. I'm going to guarantee most emails that you sit down to write, you begin with, I was thinking about this thing, and you need to da da I saw this the other day, and da We always begin with ourselves, yet what are we most interested in ourselves? So your recipient is most interested in them. You can switch it from, I saw this point, and whatever, to you might be really interested in this point. Then you can say, I heard it at the meeting, whatever. Begin with the reader. That's such an easy shift to make, yet the impact of it is pretty large. Just to set the boundaries with this call, we're talking about internal emails that we're sending to our colleagues, our teammates, maybe people who we have relationships with, like external contractors or coaches. But these aren't the necessarily the marketing emails where we're sending out cold or any of those practices. We're talking pretty much here, emails to people who you already have working relationships with. The reverse can apply too. Look at the really good marketing emails that you get. What do they do? Learn from them. They start by addressing you by name not just, hey, because they know that we pay attention to our name. We can learn from them. We shouldn't copy them entirely. Marketing emails are all about getting you to open the email. They're all about getting that open. They'll write headlines sometimes that are clickbaity, that don't necessarily tell you entirely what's in the emails, like, oh, this new thing for you, or you won't believe what happened, Anne, or what, you know, the other kind of emails, the ones that you and I are talking about, 
that are just part of your work life. You want people to open, but you also want them to be able to retrieve. So you need to be thoughtful in your subject heading that really truly describes the content of the email rather than just entices people to open. We can learn from those marketing emails. I think there's lessons to be learned there. I remember in your book, you talk about another source to learn from, which is the GPS test. You talk about how there's a complete loss of inflection on GPS systems in your car or on your phone. And we should be looking to use that as a counter example and add inflection and add the emotion that we're looking to include in our emails so that it becomes more influential and informative and even a little bit entertaining to read because we're people speaking with people and we want to have that relationship. Yeah. At the same time, the other half of the GPS test is you're writing so clear that it doesn't require intonation. So you know how this turn right on Main Street, drive 300 feet, right? It's very clear. You understand what it means. Whereas sometimes if you assume someone hears your voice going, this is a really great idea. Boom. They might read it as this is a really great idea. You see what I mean? They might read it with an entirely different tone. It could be interpreted different ways. So how would it interpret if you just heard your GPS? This is a really great idea. So it could go either way. That's also really useful to know. Be aware of the ambiguity. When you read it in the flat voice, you can see where you're leaving ambiguity in your text. This is especially true with people write long, complicated sentences that we might get lost being late well, we readers. refer to affectionately as the first draft. Exactly. We don't have time to sit and polish our emails in a world that is as busy and driven by emails as we are. I'm not suggesting that you spend hours. There may be the occasional a cold email to a new client you're going to polish or a really important email about a subject you're going to spend time with. You know which ones those are. For the rest of them, I'm not saying polish and polish. I'm saying integrate a spelling checker. Make sure you're looking for type. Give it one extra read before you put the address on and hit send. And check that for if you really want people to pay attention, spend just a moment more on that subject line and that first sentence, make it about them. There's a few little checks that you can do that don't add a lot of time. It's become part of your process that are going to make your emails work better on your behalf. They are like your little robot emissaries. We are using an extending our communication. We're extending, in essence, our reputation through the email. So we need to think about that as we send it out because it's a reflection of us. One of the points you bring out in the book that's very important is that email lives on. It's not just, hey, people (laughs) send it or leaving a post-it note. Email is stored on systems. It becomes searchable. Who knows where it could end up, especially if you run for political office someday. Yeah. yeah. Email is not that private one-to-one. It may feel one-to-one. It may feel private, but it's sitting on other people's email servers. It can be called up in court cases as evidence. So think about the things you put in email and if email is the right venue for those conversations. If you would really be distressed about other people getting it, send it on email. That's my best advice on that. It's also something where it doesn't just contain information. It contains links. It can contain attachments. There are risks associated with email. And we've been talking about email writing, but we should also practice a little bit of email defense when you're getting something that looks a little bit suspicious. Can you talk a little bit about that, Anne? Yeah. Email is such an entryway because people perceive it as this private one-to-one conversation. When we see an email, especially it looks like it's coming from someone we trust, we tend to just open it. We live in a trust-based world. And yet we need to remember email is not private and it's in fact not secure. My email chain with each individual is only secure as all of their networks and operations. And the spammers and the bad actors have gotten really good. 
like five years ago, it was really easy to detect a fake email because it was riddled with grammar errors. It was like, this is my friend is would not write like this. See, this is clearly someone who's this is not their main language trying to get me to click on a link. This is not my friend writing. Thanks to all of our wonderful grammar software and all of this. Now you get really grammatically correct things that look like they are coming from a trusted vendor or even a trusted friend. So it's important to remember as a recipient, don't click on that link, even if it looks like it's from someone, unless you know it's been in a conversation, it's part of a workflow that you're working with, and it's very clear that this is the link. Otherwise, before it's like, hey, I just got a link from you. It didn't say what it was that you and don't reply to them. Open a new email chain to the trusted person and see what's up. Or pick up the phone if it seems suspicious. Pick up the phone if it seems their whole account could be hacked. Pick up the phone and their phone won't be hacked. Exactly. Similarly, then we need to also know if we forget about that and write emails that could look like that, we're going to end up in spam. So if it's like, hey, funny joke, a link, right? The spam filters are going to say, not going to put this through. This looks like a hacking attack. So we need to remember that when we're sending emails, not to have a lot of links or a lot of links that are disguised behind a bit.ly or something that don't show where they really go. We need to be clear about what the content is and not like spammers. We need to be clear about what we're doing and why so people can know that this is in fact a trusted thing. One of the stories that I shared in the book was a woman who was a lawyer and she was working with another lawyer who sent an email that the title was attachment. Then the text was see attachment and the attachment was entitled document. It's like, why is anyone going to open this? My God, that looks like spam. And it wasn't. It was just someone who just was not spending any extra brain cycles to name anything, which did not help anybody, but it was funny. (laughs) I wonder if that lawyer would have on her drive just hundreds of documents labeled document one, document two, document three. How could that work even? Funny. Say that there are people listening to this and they're saying to themselves, email is a critical way that we communicate within our company. What would be three tips or pieces of advice that you'd offer them to make sure that they can do and things that they should avoid in order to maintain credibility, especially as they're coming up and they're talking with people who've been using email for 25 years and they're just out of college. Yeah. Here's your you're joining just out of college. There's almost two sets of punctuation and grammar, right? One that arose from the social media and text world, which is full of emojis and exclamation marks. One that arose from the print world, which is an exclamation mark as you get about one every decade. If you're entering a workforce, that's a whole mix of people find a middle ground. You don't want to layer on the emojis and exclamation marks, but you can use them to convey tone, but within reason. One thing is that just try to be forgiving and understanding of other people where they're coming from where they grew up writing and expressing themselves. One thing is to pay attention to writing a good subject line. That alone is going to make the world better right there. Just make your work life better. The subject line includes not just a subject, but some sense of what is going to be needed. So some groups agree on acronyms as FYI is just for your information, or I need this Monday, or for your response, or there's a lot of different come up with your team with a group of acronyms that you'll use so that if I'm sending you something and I need you to respond by Friday, put that in the subject. By Friday, that's going to help. By Friday, review this thing. If it's not in the subject, make sure it's in the text really near the top of what it is you hope that the person will do with this email to help them process it. If you want people to respond to their email, you need to queue it up so it's really easy for them to respond. So write a good subject line. Take the time to clarify what you want from them, that call to action that you want from them. And I'm speaking like a marketer there. If you want a response, make it clear what responses you want and when. And if you don't give a win, it just goes on to the endless to-do list. So give it a time as well. What about one or two things to always avoid? I would avoid burying 
thing at the end, because people don't, especially if you're reading on a small screen, you may never get to that end. So if you say at the very end what you want the person to do, the chances of them reaching it are probably minimal. Avoid starting new subjects within an email chain. That is such a bugaboo. Hey, great idea. Meanwhile, I I also thought about this other thing. Can we have a meeting on Friday? So now the meeting for subject B is buried on this eighth response to the subject's email for subject A. If you think about the fact that people use their email inboxes as a kind of failing filing cabinet, they're never going to find that. So don't hijack a chain into some new sub- subject. Make a new chain. I think those are great tips that people could apply to their day-to-day work. And are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Yeah, okay. I'm ready. We talked about when you were growing up, your dad writing these beautiful handwritten letters. When you were a teenager, Anne, what's a song that you loved? Oh my gosh, what's a song that I loved? Oh, there's so many. I was the youngest and a child, so I listened to the whole Beatles repertoire, even though they were not listening. There's so many of those. What's the poster you had in your room growing up as a high school student? I can't remember. I had a lot of theater posters because I did a lot of theater and a lot of shows, so I put my show posters up on the wall. Was there a favorite Broadway song or show that you loved? One of my favorite shows was A Chorus Line, partly because I, I snuck out of school to get on the train and go down and watch it in Chicago, which was really fun when it came through town. That has a really warm place in my heart. What do you find? to be the most important way to get the message out about being an effective communicator each week? You know, that the thing that I'm constantly telling people is just for a moment, put yourself in the other person's shoes. With an email, one of the ways to do that is mail it to yourself first. Mail it to yourself and then go get a cup of tea and look at it briefly on your phone while you're doing that because that's probably how someone's going to read your email. If what you're trying to communicate doesn't pop out, work on it some more. What's a book that you've given the most as a gift that's not one of yours? Yeah, I'm always giving different books because I get enticed by different subjects. I I gave away recently for Christmas, several people in my family got Fuzz, the new Mary Roach book about wildlife and human interactions and the law and crime. (laughs) It's hilarious. What would you say is the best advice you ever received? I'm going to go back to my dad for a moment. He he said, if I stop learning things and having fun, then I'm going to find something different to do. What would you say is the worst advice you ever received as an adult? Follow the money. Do the thing that pays the most. That sets you in a whole different trap. And it's been a delight to speak with you. I'm so appreciative of you sharing tips and insights from 33 ways to not screw up your business emails. You talked about your dad and the image of him on planes writing on a yellow legal pad will stay with me. Thinking about the importance of the format that you use and knowing that whether you send an email is predicated upon the impact that you want to have. The test that you shared about going back and rereading your first paragraph and changing as many of the eyes to use makes a big difference once you apply that pronoun shift. You want to be aware of ambiguity because email doesn't accompany the internal voice in your head that contained all of that nice intonation. The subject line is something that everyone listening needs to pay more attention to in order to make sure that the email gets read and acted upon because at the end of the day, we want people to take action on the emails that we send. And Janzer, once again, thank you for joining me on my quest for the best and talking about 33 ways to not screw up your business email. Thanks for having me back. And before we say goodbye for now, where is it that people can find out more about you and your work online? Best place is my website, which is my name, anjanzer.com. There's a silent E on the and, so don't forget that's very important. We're going to link to anjanzer.com. We're going to link to your social media, as well as places to buy this book, as well as the other books that you have available. Anjanzer, author of 33 Ways Not to Screw Up Your Business Emails. Thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thanks, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. 
Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.